New City Church, it's great to be here with you this morning. I'm excited about this. I've been looking forward to this really for several reasons. I've been looking forward to this uh, first because I've been just keeping up from afar with what's going on uh, here at New City Church for a while now, I guess as long as I've known Ryan, uh, a year and a half or two years. And so it's been exciting to get reports from time to time about what, is, what God's doing here in and through you, but it's great to actually just get to see it. Uh, to see what I have known from afar, which is that this is a beautiful expression of the body of Christ that God has planted here in this little corner of his creation called Lawrenceville. And so that's a great blessing to me just to get to be here and see how God is at work in and through you. The second reason I'm excited to be here this morning is because I'm really, really excited for us to look at this passage that we'll be in this morning in Nehemiah 8 and 9. I just have to tell you, uh, Ryan has been especially kind to me in letting me preach this. You know this if you've been here, as y'all been going through the book of Nehemiah, Ryan has preached some pretty tough sermons. If you remember, he started out the series preaching out of Leviticus, which most preachers avoid like the plague. And then secondly, he preached a whole nother sermon that was nothing but the names of people that we know nothing about, where they were from, and what part of the wall they rebuilt. So he's done some pretty tough sledding here. And then after all that, he gave me what I think is not maybe just the most beautiful part of the book of Nehemiah, but perhaps one of the most beautiful parts of all of the Old Testament. So I'm excited for us to get into it this morning. What I want to do is just pray quickly um, to that end before we get into the text. What I'll do is I'll pray. I want to tell you a short story that I hope will kind of set up um, the scripture, and then we'll start and get into God's word. God, we do just pray this morning, uh, quite simply, we pray that you would do in us this morning through your word what we see you do for your people in Nehemiah 8 and 9, that you would use it to help us to see the truth of who you are, your faithfulness to us, that, would use, that you would use it to lead to transformation in our own lives in full repentance. We pray it in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so the story is this. When I was a senior in high school, one night I was at church for a youth group activity and uh, several friends and I, as is often the case for high school boys, we were hungry and we were looking for something to eat. And we knew the best chance of finding something to eat was to go into the youth offices at the church where oftentimes there was leftover food, you know, a half-eaten bag of chips that had been on the table for two weeks or a Costco-sized bag of Tootsie Rolls or whatever the case might be. So we go barging in there knowing this is our best shot to find food. And sure enough, when we come through those doors right in front of us, sitting on this table right in the middle of this room is the most perfect-looking apple pie you have ever seen. Perfect lattice crust, the consistency of the filling was just right. And so my friends and I, we looked at each other and we knew two things just right away. First, we knew this pie was definitely not for us. It was not just left there for the next person that came along. The second thing we knew without even speaking to each other was we were about to eat it anyway. And so within a matter of minutes, and I mean minutes, uh, this is gross, but with our bare hands, we devoured an entire apple pie. And then, so pleased with ourselves, we didn't even make any attempt to destroy the evidence. We just left the pie tin right where we had found it, a few little crumbs and filling left around it, and went on our way. Well, not surprisingly, several weeks later, we get wind that, you know, surprise, surprise, the pie was for somebody else. It had been left there for a lady that volunteered with our youth group. So we knew what we had to do. We went and made an apology, and it's probably a little bit less than completely sincere. And uh, we thought that was kind of the end of it. Well, several months go by, and we're again at church for some youth group activity, and the pie somehow comes up again. I don't know how, but it's obvious that this lady is still very, very upset that we ate this apple pie. And at this point, honestly, my friends and I, we got a bit defensive because we thought, okay, we shouldn't have done that. We grant you that, but 
it's been several months now and it's an apple pie and we can go buy you another one and we'll try to make you another one if you want that. I mean, there's, this is not something worth holding a grudge over for several months. Well, it was at this point that her husband, who we also knew pretty well, pulled us aside and he explained to us that in fact, this was not just any apple pie. You see, the thing is, this lady's family for years and years, her family had owned some land up in LJ. They had a cabin there and some apple trees on the property. And so every year, the family would go up to the uh, family property together. They would pick apples. Her grandmother would make a special apple pie with a, family, a secret family recipe for everyone in the family. It's already getting bad, right? Well, it gets worse. It just so happened that the year before this, this lady's grandfather had passed away. And the family had convened and they decided that as much as everyone loved this property, nobody could really keep it up. And so the thing to do would be to sell it. And so before selling it one last time, the whole family goes up to LJ again, picks apples. The grandmother makes everybody one last apple pie with the secret family recipe. And we devoured it with our bare hands in minutes. As you can imagine, when we got the full picture here, when we saw the full context, when we saw everything that was kind of going on that had been hidden to us before, our response to her changed significantly. The tone of our response changed significantly. And what we're going to see here this morning is in a similar way in Nehemiah 8 and 9, the people of God look at God's word, they see something that had been hidden to, him, hidden to them or that they had forgotten, and it drastically changes their response to God. So what we're going to look for this morning is, as we look, as we get into this text, we're going to read through it uh, fairly quickly and just kind of make some observations as we go. We're going to look for two things. One, first, when the people of God look at God's word, how do they respond? And then why do they respond that way? Or to keep the language even more simple, I like simple language. We're basically just going to look at what do the Israelites do and what do the Israelites see that prompts that response? So what do they do and what do they see? And then after we've seen that in the text, We'll apply it to ourselves by saying, when, when we look at this passage, what do we see and what do we do? So that's where we're going this morning. If you will, uh, look at the screens with me. We'll begin to read this uh, text. We're going to start in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. It says, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood some guys with funny names on his right hand and some more guys on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. I probably should have had you stand. And Ezra blessed the Lord the great God and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed down, they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And some of those Levites with funny names helped the people to understand the law. And while the people remained in their places, they read from the book, from the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to your Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now you have to understand that in the book of, the ne- in the book of Nehemiah, this is really the high point of the whole book. Y'all have been going week by week and hearing how they were building this wall. And then at the end of chapter six, the wall is finally completed. The work is done. Chapter seven, it lists the names of all the people who have come back to live in Jerusalem again. And then when we get here to chapter eight, this is the, the culmination of all their work, this chance for all the people to gather in one place and hear the word of the Lord. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why has everything been leading to this? Well, the reason is because nobody could get the Bible app on their phones to work, and so they couldn't read God's word. Now, obviously, seriously, they, they couldn't get to God's word, not because, you know, not because the Wi-Fi was bad, but because in this, in this setting, in this uh, place that they're in back in Jerusalem, you have to realize most people probably couldn't read in the first place and there weren't exactly lots of copies of God's word going around. And so for years and years and years, the only way to hear God's word was to go to a setting like this where you could hear the public reading of the word and where the Levites could come and teach it to you like, like we just heard explained in the passage. And so this is how people know what God's word said. But the problem is, remember for the last 70 years, these people have been in exile. For 70 years, they've been in exile. And to, to the best of our knowledge, that whole time they're in exile, they, they can never do this. They can never get all of God's people in one place so that the scribes and the Levites and people like Ezra can read to them the word of God. So for 70 years, the people of God have been separated from the word of God. And as a result, at this point, it's been years and years, more than a full generation. In fact, at this point, we don't know this for sure, but it's possible that when Ezra reads God's word, that for some of these people, it's the first time in their life that they have directly heard the word of God. Not just heard about it, but actually heard the words read. And so this is an enormously uh, significant event. And so what do Ezra and Nehemiah tell the people to do? They tell them to rejoice. The first thing we see the Israelites do in response to God's word is to rejoice. And it's interesting, the text tells us that for some reason the the people were grieved. It doesn't say exactly why, We remember this is uh, an ancient Middle Eastern setting. These aren't, you know, stoic white North Americans here in the text. So they could be crying for any number of reasons. It doesn't really say exactly why. But it says the people are grieved and Ezra and Nehemiah tell them, no, 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 this is something to celebrate. This is something to rejoice about. And not just by yourself, but make sure everyone is in on the celebration. So that's the first thing that we see the people of Israel do, the first way they respond. The second way, getting back into the text here, we see starting again in verse 13. It says, on the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out on the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and they brought them and they made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in the courts and in the court of the house of God and in the square of the water gate and the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly, all those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. 
So what we see is on this first day, they study the book of the law for a half a day. And then Ezra and Nehemiah say, this is great, go and rejoice. They come back the next day, they study the book of, law, the, book of the law again for a whole half of a day. And what they see the second day when they're studying God's word is that there's, there's this forgotten commandment. God had told his people, hey, in the seventh month, you're supposed to celebrate this certain festival and do it in this certain way. And according to this text, it had not happened since the first generation that came into the promised land. So that's seven or 800 years that God's people have just been neglecting this commandment for him. And so what do these people do? They immediately obey. The second thing we see them do is in response to God's word, they obey. And it's obvious from the description here, they're not, you know, kind of dragging their feet like, oh, if we had not started reading this law again, we wouldn't know that we have to go out and collect all these branches and live in a booth and all this weird stuff. No, it's obvious they're eager to do it. And the text emphasizes that everyone participates. Everyone that's come back to Jerusalem, everyone that's helped to rebuild the wall, everyone does it. I mean, this is the way you wish your kids would respond when you give instruction, right? It's like, everyone's in, everyone's eager, everyone's ready to go. Their obedience is complete, it's totally full. So we see they rejoice, and then we see they obey, and then the last thing we see them do begins in chapter nine and verse one. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads, and the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. And for another quarter, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs, the Levites stood and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then some of the other Levites said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. So we see now this has been going on for almost a month. The people gathering every day to spend a whole half of the day learning from the word of the Lord. And so they do it on the first day and they rejoice and they do it on the second day and they obey. They observe this feast for a whole week. And now they've been doing it for 24 days. And what we see here is that after 24 days, they have now seen what God's word has instructed and they've compared it to the life that they've been living. And the only thing they can do is to confess and repent, to come before God and to say, we have not been living up to what you have prescribed for us, what you would have for us, what would be for our own good. What they see is that, in fact, they didn't even know how wrongly they were living. They haven't had the word of the Lord. And so their ancestors, their parents' generation and their grandparents and great-grandparents, all of these generations had strayed from God. They had gone their own way and they had led their children away as well. And so now their children are reading God's word and they're convicted by their own sin. But the amazing thing to me is the fact that it's their ancestors who led them astray. Instead of using that as an excuse for their disobedience, they choose to confess their own sin and the sin of those that came before them. You know, I think if I had been there, I would have said, you know, God, I, I'm really, I'm glad to have your word and I'm sorry that I haven't been living according to it, but I don't know what you could have expected because look at all these generations before me. I mean, I was just doing what I saw others do, right? But we don't see one bit of defensiveness in the people of God. Not one, not one little bit of them trying to kind of like claim their own righteousness. Instead, they confess their own sin and they confess the sin of the people who came before them because they see how they are connected to all these people before him that are, that are also a part of the people of God. Dating all the way back to Abraham, 
to the time when God called Abraham and said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take you, I'm gonna bless you, I'm gonna make you into a great nation so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the world. And so what we see in the rest of this chapter, in the rest of chapter nine, is the way that the people of Israel repent. We see in them basically a model for us of confession and repentance. And what we see is beautiful. What we see is that the way that they repent is that they recount their own history, the history of the people that they are a part of in such a way that highlights God's faithfulness to them in contrast with their continual unfaithfulness in response to him. And they do it in complete transparency. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna read through this prayer of confession that takes up the rest of this chapter. And I warn you, it's a little bit lengthy, so we're gonna take it in chunks. But I'm, I'm, I want you to, to hang in there, try to listen well to what this text is, because I'm willing to guess that for almost everyone here, you've had the thought at some point, you know, I really wish I understood the Old Testament better. What, was, what exactly is the relationship between God and his people in the Old Testament? It gets so confusing. There's so many characters and it spans such a long time. How can I really understand the, the nature of the relationship with, between God and his people? I will tell you that throughout the history of all of Christian scholarship, there has never been a better summary of the Old Testament written than the verses we're about to read. It is a beautiful depiction of what we see from the beginning of scripture all the way until this point in Nehemiah of how God has loved and been faithful to his people. And so we pick it back up here in verse six when it says, this is Ezra speaking, praying a prayer of confession on behalf of the people. He says, you are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens and with, with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. So he begins where the Bible begins with this unbelievable claim that the God who has made a covenant promise to this tiny little insignificant group of people called Israel is actually, it's not just their local deity, he's actually the God of all creation. He's the creator of all things. He goes on in verse seven, he says, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and you made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of these uh, other nations, all of those other nations, and you have kept your promise for you are righteous. Now, as I said a minute ago, the fact that the people are standing where they are, that God's people are back in Jerusalem, inside the wall, reading God's word, this is the very fulfillment of the promise that was given to Abraham. When God told Abraham, I'm gonna make you into a great nation, I'm gonna give your people this amazing land so that you can then be a blessing to all the world. Well, the fact that they're there and the fact that they've actually come back there after exile is the fulfillment of God's promise. They move on from there to what's the defining event in the history of God's people, the Exodus. It picks up in, chapter, in uh, verse nine. Ezra says, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and you heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst 
and you told them to go in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. This law that they're talking about is the very law that they've been studying now for 24 days, half a day, every day, studying it. And what they have to say about it now is that it's good and it's true and it's, for, it's all for their blessing. This is what God had given them. But then notice in 16, for the first time in this confession, the tone changes and this contrast begins to become a bit more clear. In 16, it says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and they stiffened their neck and they did not obey your commandments. For they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. It's actually a direct quote out of, out of Exodus 34 when God uses that to describe himself. It gets used over and over again throughout the Old Testament. Picking up again in verse 18, it says, even when, the, when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and, and, and committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the, way, in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them for the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So we begin to see this pattern, right, of highlighting God's faithfulness, his goodness to his people, but their unfaithfulness and response picks up again here in verse 22. It describes the events that we, we know of through the book of Joshua. It says, you gave them kingdoms and peoples allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heavens, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and peoples of land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. But then here comes that contrast again in verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and they rebelled against you. And they cast your law behind their back and they killed your prophets who you warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. You abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard them from heaven. Many times you delivered them according to your mercies and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of your peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. 
That section is basically a summary of everything in the Old Testament in the book of Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. This pattern that happens over and over and over again where God's people turn their back on him and they go their own way. And then they suffer the consequences of their sin and they cry out to God and he comes and he rescues them. Things go well for a while and then the cycle repeats itself over and over again. And the people see that this is happening and they see that this is what they're living out themselves, right? The fact that they spent those 70 years in exile was a result of their disobedience. But now yet again, God has been merciful. He's brought them back into the land. He's protected them while they've rebuilt the wall and so now they're there again. And so with all this in place, here's how it closes. 32 to the end here, see how God's people address God in, in, in the midst of their current circumstance. Ezra says, now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land you set before them, they did not serve you and turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sin. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. You know what this moment is like for Israel? This is like that moment that almost everyone has kind of sometime in early adulthood when they realize that that one rule or that one set of rules that they just hated growing up, that, that rule that just seemed like the bane of their existence was actually for their good. And they have all of a sudden this new perception where they can see things more clearly and they think, oh my goodness, I'm so glad that my parents did not let me go my own way. I'm so glad they enforced that rule. I'm so glad they put up with me when I continued to be disobedient, that they continued to enforce it over and over and over again. Because if I could have gone my own way, I just would have destroyed my life. That's the moment that Israel is happening here when they realize that, oh my goodness, God in his righteousness has been disciplining us out of his love for us so that he can continue to be faithful to us as he's promised to be. And so what they do as a result is they reaffirm this covenant with God and they do so by rejoicing and obeying and repenting. You know, it's remarkable. I mentioned earlier that Ryan started this series out with Leviticus 26. And if you go back later today, I would love to read it right now, but I think I've pushed my luck on how much we can read in one sermon. So go back later today, look up Leviticus 26, and you will be amazed that what we read in Nehemiah chapter nine is exactly what God promised his people would happen. That they would disobey and go their own way, that he would have to discipline them in love, that they would cry out to him for mercy, and that he would come, that he would not forsake him. He would not forsake them, but he would return in his faithfulness. And so the thing that the people see here, remember we said we're gonna look for what Israel does and then what they see, the thing that Israel sees that motivates their rejoicing and their obedience and their repentance is they see the faithfulness of God. They see the astounding, unrelenting faithfulness of God 
who through all the generations, every time they turned their back on him, he would not forsake them. He would not let them go their own way. But he remained faithful to them as his people and faithful to his own word that he would use them to be a blessing to the nations. The question then turns to us. In this text, what do we see? What do we see in remembering how God interacted with his people thousands of years ago? What difference does it make for us? What we see is that it is only because of God's faithfulness to his people that we now know him. It's only because of God's faithfulness to his people that we now know him because if God had forsaken these people, that's the end of the story. But instead, through this little ragtag bunch that Nehemiah and Ezra have in Jerusalem, eventually God raises up the greatest ever sign of his faithfulness in his son. And not only that, it's through his son, through the death and resurrection of Christ, that he deals with our perpetual unfaithfulness. The fact that we cannot hold up our end of the bargain, the fact that we cannot respond to God as faithfully as he initiates to us, God deals with that in the work of Christ. And what we see in scripture, it's so clear in the New Testament, is that even if we're not descendants of this same line, even if we're not connected by blood to these people in the Old Testament, that we have been in a sense engrafted into this family tree. And so now all of a sudden, all these amazing stories of God's faithfulness to his people, these are our stories. These are the stories of God's faithfulness to us. And so now we look back at the Old Testament and it's not removed and detached from us. We look back at it and we say, this is the faithfulness of God to these people and to me. It's amazing what happens when we see this. We see that we are tied to this lineage, this heritage of God's people throughout history and that through it we are the recipients of his faithfulness. The difficult thing for us in this is that we don't often think this way. Just naturally, we think individualistically. We think only in terms of ourselves. And so we think just in terms of me and my relationship with God kind of detached from anyone or anything that came before me. It doesn't help that we live in a culture that emphasizes this, that kind of reinforces this ideal. But when we begin to let scripture, when we begin to let the story of God's faithfulness reorient our lives, we begin to see that we live in this heritage, in this lineage of God's faithfulness. And so what does that lead us to do? Of course, it leads us to do the exact same things that it led the people of Israel to do. It leads us first to rejoice, to give thanks, to celebrate that we are the ones who inherit this, that we are the ones who are a part of this. And just like it said for Israel, not to do so just by ourselves, but to include everyone in the celebration, to make sure that there's no one who goes without, who gets left out of the celebration, to send, I like how it says, send the fat and the sweet wine to make sure that everyone is involved. Then secondly, we obey, just like we see Israel obey in Nehemiah. It's not dragging our feet, mumbling along, oh, God's law is such a burden but we see God's faithfulness to us and we desire to be faithful in response. We desire to respond in equal faithfulness. And then lastly, it leads us to do, <clears throat> excuse me, it leads us to do the very thing that Israel eventually did, which is to repent. It leads us to complete repentance. And I think it's interesting, and this is something I'm just recently coming to understand, is that it leads us not only to repent just for our own sin, just for the things that I have done wrong, but to join in this corporate repentance, to be a part of repenting on behalf of the people of God broadly. 
because we begin to see that we don't just exist alone. We're not just these autonomous beings that have a relationship with God and disconnected from everything else. We begin to see that when we're connected to this heritage of God's faithfulness, we get that on the one hand, we get that on the positive side that we are the recipients of God's faithfulness. But if we're a part of his people, then we're also a recipient also of all the baggage that comes with us and all of God's people that came before us. And so we grow to eventually realize that we can repent of more and more and more and more. We can begin to repent of things that we didn't even know we were connected to. And that may sound kind of abstract. That may sound, um, that may just seem like a bizarre idea to you. Why would I ever uh, confess to something? Why would I ever repent of something that I didn't even do myself? But I'll tell you one of the main ways that I've been learning about this recently. I've been learning about it in the context of the denomination that our church is a part of. One of the ways that your church, uh, New City Church and my church, Brookhaven Pres, are connected is that we're a part of the same denomination. The, it's called the Presbyterian Church in America. So you may be sitting here thinking, God, they didn't put that in the name. I didn't know this is Presbyterian Church or whatever, but sorry, it is. Um, and there's a lot of good things about being in a denomination, even though that that's uh, not always people's perspective. But if you don't know much about it, our denomination is a relatively young, relatively small, in the big picture of things, relatively insignificant denomination that God has in his providence formed together here in this little part of the world. Our denomination was founded in 1973. And so when I say young, that's all, you know, all things considered pretty young. Founded with a pretty small number of churches. But one of the things that has happened, especially just in this last year, is people have begun, uh, people haven't started this year, but people have begun to talk more about the history of the churches in our denomination, even dating before we were founded. So our church, you know, our church and our denomination didn't just kind of poof into existence out of nowhere. It actually came from a, a church that no longer, or a denomination that no longer exists that was known as the Southern Presbyterian Church. It's a historic Presbyterian denomination. And there were good reasons that people chose to break away from that and start something new. But it doesn't change the fact that that's where our roots are for many of our churches. Some of the churches in our denomination are now hundreds of years old, dating back to the 18 and the 1700s. But it probably won't be a shock to you that a church that is a uh, historic Southern denomination has a good bit of baggage. There's, there's some skeletons in the closet. There's some stuff in our past that's not so good. Specifically in the area of our interaction with our African-American brothers and sisters, really dating all the way back to um, in the 1700s, some of our churches and pastors in this denomination defending the institution of slavery up even more recently in the era of the civil rights movement when in the Southern Presbyterian Church, some people actually tried to use scripture to argue for the segregation of the races, tried to enforce segregated worship services, some really horrible, horrible things that happened. And so people have begun to bring these things to light. And last summer, there was a significant meeting of our denomination when the denomination as a whole committed itself to saying, you know what? We're not gonna keep these things hidden anymore. We're gonna bring all this stuff out in the light. And we're intentionally gonna own up to it and we're gonna confess to it. And most of our churches were not even around yet when these things happened. I mean, you know, y'all are a little church plant. I work in a little church plant. These things happened way before we came into existence. It could be easy to say, well, what does this have to do with us? But what we're acknowledging is we didn't come out of nowhere. We're connected to the people of God that came before us. And there was sin that existed in those people, just like there's sin that exists in everybody else. And so because of that, we are not just willing, but we are desiring to own our own part in that, to confess our sin in it, to seek forgiveness from those that we have wronged, and then to move towards racial reconciliation. 
but you know, it's interesting. I've been interacting with other uh, pastors on this, and some, if they've uh, been honest, some have been honest enough with me to say, you know, I, I very much am behind this. I'm, I'm glad that we're doing this, but I, there's one thing I'm having a hard time understanding. I'm having a hard time understanding why I would confess things that I never did. That just doesn't make any sense to me. Why, you know, I never tried to uh, bar, you know, someone from a worship service. I never tried to defend segregation with scripture or whatever it might be. And I, you know, I confess that I, I, uh, I understand where they're coming from in this. Because until more recently, until several years ago, this was honestly my perspective about a lot of things, particularly in relation to race relations in our country, that things that happened well before I was even alive, I thought, well, I'm really sorry that that happened but I wasn't there and I didn't really have anything directly to do with it. And so I'm not sure how it, how it has that much to do with me. But I'll tell you, as I have been growing to understand what I think Nehemiah 8 and 9 teaches us, how we are connected to the people of God who have come before us, it's changed my perspective on this such that I'm now not just okay with it, but I'm eager, I'm desiring to be a part of this repentance that's happening in our church. To go ahead and own up to these things, to say, let's not keep these skeletons in the closet anymore. Let's, let's shine light on this. Let's, let's repent. Because what I've come to see is that while I may not have done some of those specific things in the past, my current sin is very much connected to that sin. Because the reality is that I have over the course of my life failed to see just the depravity of racial injustice. I have at times benefited from racial injustice. There have been times when I have seen racial injustice, but I have not done anything or have not done enough in response to it. There have been times that I have expected minority brothers and sisters in Christ to accommodate to me and to my cultural norms because I'm a part of the dominant culture. There's times that I have failed to see and to celebrate what minority brothers and sisters in Christ have to offer that I do not. I I could go on and on and on, but what I've grown to see is that I am guilty of sin in this. And even though I may not be guilty of everything, my sin is connected to that sin. And so the appropriate thing for me to do and for us to do is just to confess all of it to repent of all of it, to say, Lord, would you have mercy? You've been faithful to us when, when we have been unfaithful to you would, you. would you have mercy on us? And the reason we can do it is because we know in God's faithfulness that he will have mercy, that we're not claiming our own righteousness, that we're not having to defend ourselves, but that he is our righteousness on our behalf. If I can just close, uh, I would close with this. I would close by just posing the question to you as New City Church, what would this look like for you? You're in a similar position to my church. You're young, you haven't been around that long, you haven't been in this community that long, but what would it look like to see and to understand that you are connected to the people of God that have come before you in the good and in the bad, in God's faithfulness to them and in their unfaithfulness in, in response? And where would there be opportunities for you to similarly confess and repent? Maybe it's to be a part of what our denomination is doing and to take some part in that. Another thing I would suggest might be an answer is something that Ryan mentioned a few weeks ago. To realize that you are connected to the work that God has been doing here in Lawrenceville since long before you got here. And that has good and bad aspects to it. I know because I spend every day in a church planning context too, it can be so easy to fall into thinking that, you know, well, God has called us here and now that we're here, like now God's really on the move. Now God's really at work here. But we know better than that, right? We know that's not true. We know that God's been at work here for years and years and years before. And by his grace, he has planted this little work here and allowed you to be a part of what he's doing. That happened way before you were here. It'll continue way after you're gone. But what would it look like to say, 
we want to know. We want to know how Christians who have come before us have, have hurt people here, have wronged people here, and we want to confess. We want to repent. We want to be a part of that. Not to manipulate, not to anything like that, but because we are compelled by seeing God's faithfulness to us, to his people, who are never as faithful as he is in response. So let me close just by praying to that end for you and for me and for your church and for mine. God, we thank you for your word. For Nehemiah 8 and 9, that was a lot to try and sort through and digest in one uh, quick shot this morning. But we pray that you would use the power of your word through the power of your spirit to transform our hearts and our minds and our lives. God, would you give us clarity to see where we can confess and repent? Would you help us to see where not only are we the heirs of your incredible faithfulness, but where we are connected to your people who have not always been faithful before us and where our sin is connected to their sin. And would you help us to repent with willing hearts, eager as we see the people of Israel in Nehemiah chapter nine, who are quick to rejoice, quick to obey, quick to repent. Would you make that true of us as well? We pray it in Christ's name, amen.